0: A 21-year-old male was in an argument with a friend. Things were escalating, and unfortunately, he took a handful of medications in front of the friend as a self-harm attempt. The friend, concerned about the patient's health, drove him to the emergency department. But en route, the patient became unconscious, stopped breathing, and developed cyanosis. Emergency department workers removed the patient from the car and noted them to be pulseless. They immediately started CPR. Once the patient was on telemetry, they noticed a wide, complex ventricular arrhythmia. They immediately defibrillated with 200 joules, which terminated the rhythm and provided return of spontaneous circulation. What toxin could cause such rapid decline in mental status and ventricular arrhythmias? If you want answers, keep listening. This is The Poison Lab. You are listening to The Poison Lab, a show about poisoning from people who manage poisoning. I'm your host, clinical toxicologist and emergency medicine pharmacist, Ryan. I cannot wait to dive into this case. But before we get into it, we do have a pretty long email section today. So if you want to jump right into learning about the toxin, go to minute 22. Otherwise, I'm really looking forward to digging into the differentials listed by all of our listeners. Oh, but before we continue, Toxo, I forgot to introduce you. Hey, Toxo. Are are you okay? Why are you staring off into space?
1: Oh, sorry, I was just distracted. Oh, by what? The ironic nature of human brains evolving in an environment of scarcity, leading to pursuit of rewarding activities, like searching for food and water for example, being a much more powerful motivator than the reward itself, the food and water. The feeling of wanting ends up being much greater than the feeling of having.
0: What's so ironic about that? Isn't that why we're still here? We kept pursuing food and nutrients even after we had already found some food and nutrients? You can't only eat once.
1: Yes, but the human brain's need to continually seek rewarding activity has terraformed the Earth into an environment where humans are never without easy access to one of those rewards. Infinite food, water, shelter, non-stop on-demand streaming entertainment, unending social attention from social media, even euphoria on demand with seemingly limitless supplies of psychoactive drugs. The environment has changed from one of scarcity, to one of excess. The brain however remains the same, still motivated by its dopamine pathways to prioritize the pursuit of rewarding activities. But in now the only limit to reward, is how often a human chooses to indulge in it, not its availability. Your evolutionary drive is making overconsumption nearly impossible to avoid.
0: Okay, so we adapted too well, that's what's
1: ironic? No. What is ironic is that each time a human indulges in a pleasurable act the reward they receive from it diminishes. The first cookie is good, the 100th is painful. But this does not change the fact that your dopaminergic motivation to pursue rewarding activities is still one of the most powerful motivators, even when the reward from the activity diminishes. You begin to want things, even though you do not like them. Like when I notice you humans mindlessly scrolling social media on your phone, even though you get nothing pleasurable from it, and usually you were not even aware you picked up your phone to do it.
0: Oh, sorry, what'd you say? I was on my phone. I got an email from Netflix saying there's a new show that I could binge, and then I I guess I just started checking my emails.
1: The more you continually pursue these dopamine-driven pleasure activities, The more dopamine you are exposed to, and the more you down-regulate its production, creating dopamine-depleted states at baseline that cause lack of motivation for other activities. And pleasure and pain are linked. Excessive pleasures caused from excessive reward attainment homeostatically regulates the brain to increase baseline pain, stress, and anxiety in day-to-day life.
0: I mean, that's kind of silly Toxo. So how could our lives being too good make everybody miserable?
1: Just like how chronically blocking pain signals with opioids can cause upregulation of pain receptors, leading to more baseline pain for the user. This unlimited access to dopamine actually creates the conditions where you feel pain and stress at baseline, and the brief moments of pleasure you feel are less and less rewarding each time. The irony is your survival advantage has built to you a torture chamber. The escape is to be mindful of how your brain tricks you and actually seek distressful situations to balance your mind in this new environment. Fasting makes your next meal more savorable. Exercising makes rest a reprieve. Hard work make idle time a gift.
0: Uh, could you say that again, Toxo? I was busy watching TikToks at this new banger by Saweetie and Doja Cat. It's called Best Friend. It's great. There's like a million likes. I put a comment on it. Everybody loved it. Hey, do you want to try this chocolate bar? I've got 57 of them.
1: Never mind my tortured friend. Let's get on with the show.
0: Sounds great. Let's get to the case. We have a patient who rapidly decompensated. We're talking unconscious within half hour of ingestion. And then ventricular arrhythmias? I have a few ideas. Well, I mean, I guess I actually already know what it is. But let's see what the listeners think this poison was. Toxo, roll the emails.
1: Activating email reading protocols. Transmissions from the poison Verse. This first email
0: comes from listener Cowboy Spencer. And they say, Dijoxin. Actually, quite a few people guess that. Can you play that one from listener Alex?
1: She says, Hi, Poison Lab Crew. I have no idea how a 21-year-old would have gotten a hold of this. But my guess is Digitalis.
0: Did you just pronounce digitalis? Digitalis?
1: Tomato. Tomato. I can broadcast my thoughts at frequencies beyond human understanding and occasionally simplifying it down to your human language causes processing errors. Forgive me.
0: Hey, I actually kind of like digitalis. So why is everyone guessing digitalis? Let's take a look at this guess. This one's from listener Eric P., an emergency department and ICU nurse and paramedic. They say, Hi, Ryan and Toxo. Regarding the episode 14 teaser, tricyclic antidepressants, beta blockers, and calcium channel blockers come to mind as causative agents. However, I wouldn't expect that rapid of an onset. I'm very tempted to think cardiac glycosides like digoxin. Hyperkalemia would further support an acute ingestion of digoxin.
1: Why is he talking about
0: hyperkalemia? Dijoxin blocks sodium potassium ATPase pumps. These are pumps that work super hard to keep potassium inside your cell. So when you block it, well, you don't have as much potassium inside, and we measure a higher concentration of potassium outside of your cell in the serum, where we check potassiums. And thus, you can see hyperkalemia as an effect of digoxin poisoning. He goes on to say... Dijoxin levels could also be good to verify this as the causative agent, but I'm aware it wouldn't reflect the true peak until hours later. What does he mean by that, Ryan? Good question, Toxo. He's referring to the fact that digoxin has a large volume of distribution and a long distribution phase. After you absorb a drug, it needs to distribute into your tissues digoxin takes quite a while to start distributing, at least six hours. So if you check a level within six hours of ingestion, it's going to appear artificially elevated in the serum because it has not yet distributed to the rest of the tissue. This is why we usually try to check a trough level just prior to their next digoxin dose, as it's more reflective of their steady-state serum concentration that we often evaluate to assess the drug's therapeutic effect.
1: Wow, pharmacokinetic modeling in you 2 compartment humans is so complex. I much prefer my single compartment. It holds all my parts and my drugs too. Eric goes
0: on to mention various treatments he might use for digoxin, like Digifab and how to treat various arrhythmias. I'm not going to read the entire email due to time, but great guess Eric and everyone else who guessed digoxin. DIG is absolutely associated with all sorts of arrhythmias, bradycardia, ventricular tachycardia, bidirectional ventricular tachycardia. So it should be included in a differential of toxin-induced arrhythmias. However, the rapid onset, without drinking some sort of a cardiac glycoside plant tea, I wouldn't imagine it to occur within 30 minutes. Okay, let's see what some other people had to say. This one comes from listener Kevin Almer. They say, Dear Sir or Madam, I listened to your case in episode 14. I'm very insecure about what could have caused this condition, but as it was named a medication that caused this harsh arrhythmia, my first guest was amiodarone. Looking forward to hear if I was correct or what really caused this condition. Best regards, Kevin Allmer. Kevin, thanks for writing into the show, and I love your guests, but there are a few reasons why amiodarone doesn't really fit this picture. Number one, amiodarone just doesn't cause rapid decompensation. If I have somebody who's in an acute arrhythmia, I might give them up to 2.2 grams of amiodarone in a single day. It has a huge therapeutic window. Acute toxicity is very difficult to achieve, although chronic is a whole other story. In fact, it's one of the least arrhythmic of the antiarrhythmics. Because it blocks both potassium channels as well as calcium channels, it sort of self-treats its own potential torsades. If you're not sure why calcium channel blockade may prevent torsades, go back to the Experimental Mechanisms of Torsades bonus episode. I've only seen one case report of amiodarone overdose in a patient who took 3.4 grams of amiodarone. That's far more than somebody could fit in a handful of tablets. And that patient had a brief self-limiting arrhythmia and had normal mental status the whole time. So it doesn't seem consistent with what we are seeing in this case. But great guess. This next guess comes from listener Daxton Spencer, a PGY-1 emergency medicine resident, who says, Hello, I think this case is a TCA overdose. Thanks. (laughs) Thanks for writing in, Daxton. I think TCAs were the most commonly guessed after digoxin, and with good reason. PCAs classically cause central nervous system depression from their anticholinergic effects, as well as severe, often fatal arrhythmias. But that anticholinergic effect of tricyclic antidepressants also tends to slow down gut absorption. So sometimes effects can be delayed or at the very least prolonged from continued absorption. I'm not sure that we would see this rapid of an onset of arrhythmia without an absolutely massive overdose. Okay, this next guess comes from listener Christian Kroll, an emergency medicine pharmacist, and Dan McCabe, a medical toxicologist. They say... Hey, Ryan. Really enjoy your podcast. We really appreciate the reviews of topics and the deep dives that you provide. Hey, thanks, Christian. Glad to hear you listening. Thanks for writing in. Dan McCabe and myself thought about this one and wanted to give it a whirl. We need more history. How long from time to ingestion to arrival at the hospital? Was the wide complex ventricular arrhythmia tacky or Brady? Does this person... Have substance use disorder, an autoimmune disorder, psychiatric conditions, cardiac history, anything that could help us determine any baseline medication? Was it his own medication or someone else's? Okay, you raise good points. Wide complex ventricular arrhythmias could be brady or tachy. This one was defibrillated, so we can infer it was a tachy arrhythmia. And absolutely, more history could help us, but we rarely know that kind of history when the patient presents... This is an especially challenging case because we don't have much information. So it really could be a variety of substances. But that's why we're going to get to learn from you, Dan and Christian, about what your differentials are. They go on to say, We also don't know if this was respiratory depression leading to cardiac arrest or malperfusing arrhythmia, which caused unresponsive state and apnea. This is a great point from this guess. It's chicken or the egg. Did the toxin cause the arrhythmia and decline in mental status, or did the decline in mental status cause acidemia and then an arrhythmia? They go on to say, When thinking about tachyarrhythmias, thoughts go to TCAs, propranolol, sotalol, anticholinergics, flecainide, stimulants, and chloroquine derivatives. Now, usually with the TCAs, propranolol, and anticholinergics, you would expect some seizure-like activity prior to these cardiac events. And the quick reversal with DFib is interesting. While flecainide and chloroquine could be options, you usually need sodium to really fix the problem. Additionally, sodalol could cause a torsade de point, wide complex arrhythmia, but usually you would need to overdrive pace them, either with electricity or drugs to increase the heart rate like isoproteranol or epi. Now comes the piece about the rapid sedation to arrhythmia. Loperamide could be possible, but the quick time frame makes it unlikely. Also, you already did an episode on loperamide, which makes it even more unlikely. Could be another opioid too. The cardiac activity makes us think of methadone, but could be any opioid since that would produce a severe respiratory acidemia that could potentially lead to a wide complex tachycardia. Tough case. Interested to hear more about it, Christian and Dan. Thank you so much for writing in, Christian and Dan. That was an excellent review of potential proarrhythmic ingestions, as well as the various mechanisms that could lead to arrhythmia. Maybe they went unconscious, had hypoxia, and then acidemia, and that could have caused the arrhythmia. And that guess was so similar to our next guesser, Patrick Rose, a pharmacist from Syracuse, New York. He says, Hi, Ryan and Toxo. Love the show. Okay, I have to paraphrase the guess a little bit here for time, but he goes on to explain that tricyclic antidepressants, stimulants, and bupropion are less likely because the patient didn't have a sympathomimetic or anticholinergic toxidome before becoming unresponsive and no seizures were reported. He also thinks that it's not cyanide or digoxin because generally you would need hydroxycobalamin or digifab administration to resuscitate these patients. He also mentions that sodium channel blockers like flecconide or TCAs are unlikely to be around, and you would expect to need sodium loading in combination with ACLS to treat those. He does bring up a new guess here, which would be potassium, stating, "...potassium has been utilized to facilitate capital punishment and could cause wide-complex ventricular dysrhythmias and overdose." These events, however, have primarily occurred following IV overdose, and I think rapid toxicity is unlikely following oral overdose since potassium is generally available as an extended release formulation. Finally, he says, quinidine and chloroquine represent possible but less likely exposures as they're infrequently used in the U.S. Methadone may also be a cause of dysrhythmia, however, I doubt this would cause such a rapid decline in the patient's mental status hydroxychloroquine and loperamide in large doses have been reported to cause rapid mental status depression and cardiac dysrhythmia and are more widely available to the general public. For these reasons, I think it's most likely that this patient ingested a large amount of hydroxychloroquine or loperamide. Wow, great guess and differential, Patrick. The guess for loperamide is interesting, but some users report taking up to 200 tablets in a day. So I don't know if taking just a handful of loperamide would produce such profound CNS sedation. But I love the thought process on what kind of things are available in the home. And so many similar concepts to the guests before you. So you can see we're really honing in on these potentially arrhythmic or rapidly sedating compounds.
1: Ryan, don't forget you have an audio clip guess.
0: Oh, yeah, that's right. Here's the clip from listener Ed Kroon.
2: There's the saying that when you hear hoofbeats, think horses. Rapid onset of loss of consciousness and cyanosis after taking pills has been the sound of the thundering herd that is the current opioid epidemic. Methadone and methadol, in particular, are known to weakly inhibit the cardiac IKR. And while not as strongly associated with QT prolongation as methadone, some of the opioids that come in pill form, such as oxycodone and tramadol, can cause QT prolongation towards odds to points and even cardiac arrest with high doses. And then there's just the basic biology of the ABCs, where if you stop breathing, the circulation will soon stop too. Tramadol, or as some toxicologists like to call it, tramadont, is unusual in that in addition to the regular sedation and respiratory depression with other opioids, the patient can also suffer some serotonin syndrome. There are, of course, other medications that are even more likely to cause arrhythmias and cardiac arrest. They can also cause lethargy and respiratory depression, like bupropion, but they tend not to have such a rapid onset, and they tend to have other noteworthy symptoms like vomiting and seizures. So my guess is that this person took a handful of either licit, illicit, or formerly licit opioids.
0: What a great guess. Rapid sedation with an arrhythmia. Opioids, especially ones that have proarrhythmic effects, just like other guessers have mentioned. Bringing up the dose-dependent QTC prolongation with oxycodone, I think that's something not many people are aware of. So, great point to make. Okay, these have all been fantastic. We have time for one more guess, and I think this one is a good one. This guess comes from listener Adam Blumenberg. He states, hey, I enjoy your show. Here's my guess and reasoning. Well, hey, thanks, Adam. A 21-year-old who took a friend's medicine with rapid progression to ventricular dysrhythmia that responds to defibrillation. The clues here are that it's fast-acting, prescribed or available to youths, and it's cardioactive. I think he is on to something, Ryan. Absolutely. The fast-acting nature of this toxin was one of the main clues in this episode. Adam says, There are a handful of drugs that could possibly fit. Tricyclic antidepressants, which a 21-year-old might be prescribed for sleep or refractory depression. We typically see seizures or mental status changes prior to the VT or VF, but these may have gone undetected in the backseat of a car. Other drugs, like bupropion, may cause V-fib or VTAC, but tend to be more delayed and often have seizures before the cardiovascular collapse, though not always. And this syndrome definitely does not match SSRIs, SNRIs, or even MAOIs. Another drug might be opiates. A high initial dose may lead to rapid mental status and respiratory decline, which in itself could cause pulsus electrical activity. Other than methadone, propoxyphene. Do they still even make that question mark? And a handful of other QTC and sodium channel blocking opioids, most would not cause direct cardiotoxicity. That said, global ischemia and hypoxia related to cardiac arrest may lead to ventricular dysrhythmias. So you can see VF and VT as a secondary effect of hypoxic respiratory failure.
1: Another guess of bringing up the chicken or the egg.
0: Well, they're good things to bring up toxo. If we know it was a primary arrhythmia, it might narrow in what we're focusing on versus somebody who had an arrhythmia for being apneic. And this is where things get complicated when you're trying to figure out what toxin caused a problem when the patient has already been in cardiac arrest because acidemia and brain injury can lead to many different physical findings and clinical presentations. Okay, back to Adam's guess. He says, Common things being common, This patient may have ingested commonly available over-the-counter products. He then reviews a robust list of over-the-counter medicines, but states none of these listed medications can cause such rapid decline. Diphenhydramine can cause sodium channel blockade and overdose, but like TCA's, typically has anticholinergic prodrome before the seizures and cardiovascular collapse. And oxymetazoline can cause rapid CNS depression and sympatholysis. And it is a liquid, which would be rapidly absorbed, But a handful of a liquid is functionally unrealistic based on the case. He then goes on to key in on the rapidness of the patient's decompensation and lists a number of fast actors that are known to cause rapid decline. Cyanide, sodium azide, sodium fluoride, compound 1080, phosphine, and a few others. But he states, you don't just get sustained ROSC from those. So what health conditions would a 21-year-old have that gives him access to this extremely dangerous medicine? He lists a few conditions like depression, maybe hypertension, or even an infection, but none of the agents used for those fit this toxidrome. Then he states, congenital heart abnormalities happen, and a 21-year-old friend with Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome or supraventricular tachycardia or even paroxysmal afib is plausible. They may have antiarrhythmics on hand to cardiovert their heart when they go into an arrhythmia, like the pill-in-pocket method. What happens when someone takes a handful of cardioactive medicines? Well, your question stem is the textbook answer. My guess is flecainide. Thanks for doing the podcast. I really enjoy it. Adam Blumenberg. Thank you, Adam. Or let's say Dr. Blumenberg, for sharing your medical expertise. I can assess that that was a medical toxicologist's answer to this question. And flaconide is a great guess. That is one of the drugs that causes my pupillary sphincters to tighten when I hear that a patient has overdosed on it. It can cause severe arrhythmias from its sodium channel blocking effects as well as seizures. We had so many great guesses from so many experts today. Everyone was running through rapid-acting ventricular arrhythmia-causing or rapid apnea-causing agents. And if you were listening closely to the guesses, I'm sure you heard some themes emerge. It probably was not a TCA because it was so rapid and there was no anticholinergic prodrome or seizure before the arrhythmia. Many people brought up the possibility of opioids rapidly causing CNS depression and that leading to hypoxia and an arrhythmia. Or the opioid itself, like methadone, propoxyphene, loperamide, being able to interfere with cardiac ion channels and cause an arrhythmia. Numerous guesses also mentioned that it could be a sodium channel blocker, like flecainide, hydroxychloroquine, or chloroquine, or a TCA, but it was unusual that you did not need sodium to treat the arrhythmia. And digoxin, as well as all of these sodium channel blocking agents, were guessed multiple times, with good reason, because they all have a propensity to cause serious and fatal arrhythmias and overdose. But I have bad news for everybody. Not a single guesser got it right this time.
1: I am truly surprised, Ryan. Your listeners are generally much smarter than you.
0: Well, it has nothing to do with their intelligence Toxo. so this was a little bit of a weird presentation for this specific toxin, but patients don't always present exactly like the toxidrome says. As many listeners keyed in on, this patient probably would have had a seizure normally, and probably would have gotten some sodium bicarbonate normally, but this one actually didn't need any of that. We'll talk more about it when we get to the actual case. But at the end of the day, this one didn't make it into anyone's differentials, so all the more reason for this episode. Everyone seemed to want to know the patient's past medical history to figure out what prescriptions he could have, but it doesn't actually matter, as anyone could have access to this medication, if you've ever experienced a cough before. All right, without further ado, Toxo, drop that beat for me. Is that my Bessie in a Tessie? If that Bessie is Bessianitate and that Tessie is Tessilon Pearls, then find yourself a new bestie Because we're talking about the prescription cough medicine, Benzonotate, known by its brand name of Tessalon Pearls.
1: Ryan, whatever pun you just tried to make there, please, for all of us, never do that again.
0: I can make absolutely no promises when it comes to Doja Cat Talkso. But before we jump into the history of this wildly ineffective and effectively fatal drug, we have to choose our listener winner. With a great differential and keying in on the rapidness of the clinical effects, I'm going to have to go with Adam Blumenberg. Cue the streamers, Toxo.
1: Oh, yes, I'm oh dear, so sorry. That was the wrong file. Here we are.
0: I told you it was catchy, Toxo. Congrats, Adam. Please reach out to the show to get your free poison lab sticker
1: wait wasn't this one pretty unusual ryan shouldn't everyone get a sticker
0: hmm i guess you have a good point all right everybody did have great guesses and there was learning points in all of them so if you sent in a guess reach out to the show and you will get a free poison lab sticker just because of how good everyone's guesses are and not because i just received 500 stickers and if i didn't get to read your guess keep sending them in there's always a learning point to be found in any of the guesses. all right toxic colleagues Let's Benzana taste this toxic rainbow. Hughes, talk, roll toxo, roll the history segment.
1: Jamie, in a <academies> Apologies, I must be malfunctioning. Perhaps I am coming down with something.
0: Well, if you're coming down with Doja fever, I hope you never get better, Toxo. Now, normally in this segment, we talk about where these poisons come from and their historical relevance. But I'm just going to rename this segment Why I Hate Tessalon Pearls. The first is that as a toxicologist, I'm quite obsessed with risk benefit ratios, and the benefit of this drug has really never been proven. I mean, structurally, benzonitate is a sodium channel blocker related to tetracaine, and it's supposed to block the cough reflex, but it was FDA approved in 1958, four years before the Kefauer Harris Act that required drug manufacturers to prove efficacy before bringing a drug to market. So we never had any randomized objective trials to really show that this helps patients. So in my risk benefit ratio, my benefit is sort of just a big question mark. That would be fine if it wasn't a super rapid acting poison shaped like a candy. Reason number two why I hate this drug. It actually carries a black box warning for looking too much like candy. And that's because it's a liquid gel, a little round bead that when you chew on it, it pops and you get a nice burst of liquid. Which is great if you're eating a mint and not a super rapid-acting sodium channel blocker. Reason number three I despise this drug is that the liquid capsule not only makes it shiny and attractive to children, but... The liquid is rapidly absorbed. So it adds insult to injury. Not only do children want to eat it, but it's way more faster acting than most drugs that the children would eat. In a post-market safety review of Benzonatate, there was 12 pediatric overdoses, and some of them developed symptoms of seizures, coma, and arrhythmia in as little as 15 minutes from ingestion. In another review by two clinical toxicologists, Faisal Manaj and James Leonard, they looked at all of the severe benzonitate exposures reported to U.S. poison centers, as well as any published cases of severe exposures. Over 50% of patients had symptoms develop in under 5 minutes, and way more in under 30 minutes. That is far faster than most drugs. See, in a normal scenario, after you ingest a tablet, it doesn't just phase through your body and you have a full tablet sitting in your blood. It needs to dissolve in the aqueous solution of your stomach, and then it absorbs via active transport or diffusion across your biologic membrane. And that's how it gets into systemic circulation and reaches your organs. But because benzonitate actually comes as a liquid wrapped in a plastic capsule, it is ready to be absorbed immediately if the capsule is crushed or chewed. So we can start to see the effects of toxicity rapidly. Now, those effects that develop rapidly are no joke. Toxo, can I get some toxic mechanism lo-fi?
1: Just remember, each time you hear this, you enjoy it less and less.
0: You wouldn't say that if it was Swedish and Doja Cat, Toxo. Okay, for those of you who hate this section, don't worry. We already covered a lot of the problems that Benzonate causes in the Loperamide episode, where we kind of talked about the cardiac action potential. We also talked a little bit about it in the hydroxychloroquine episode, where managing a crashing hydroxychloroquine patient. So I won't reiterate that much, but you can go back there if you want to learn more. The primary effects of benzonitate is as a sodium channel block. Sodium channels are incredibly important in the body and used in pretty much every vital organ. In previous episodes, we've talked about sodium potassium ATPase pumps. They're pretty much the reason you exist to make ATP to power these pumps. They pump sodium outside of your cells and potassium into the cell, keeping ions nice and separated as opposed to what they would do in a glass of water, which is intermixed with each other. It's what makes you not just a big pile of chemicals. So having all that sodium on the outside is incredibly important. And the way your cells communicate with each other and initiate very important intracellular processes is by letting all of that sodium back into the cell. It's called depolarization. And it does that with sodium channels. Your neurons use sodium channels. And when we block them, you can have seizures. Your heart uses sodium channels. And when we block those, we wind up with arrhythmias. And we can see all sorts of other problems from seizures and arrhythmias, like cardiac arrests, coma, brain edema, anoxic encephalopathy, going apneic because the respiratory center of your brain has been destroyed from prolonged hypoxia. And these gnarly clinical effects are happening very quickly. In the review of severe exposures to benzonitate reported to U.S. Poison Centers, seizures and arrhythmias could occur in under 30 minutes. In regards to treatment, there's only so much we can do. We can support airway, breathing, and circulation, and there's no real antidote We can give a bunch of sodium to the patient, usually in the form of intravenous sodium bicarbonate, to really increase that extracellular concentration of sodium and increase its diffusion gradient, or the sodium current, across the cell membrane. This can help overcome sodium channel blockade. Otherwise, for seizures, many of our anti-epileptics are sodium channel blockers, so that wouldn't be recommended. That's why, for toxin-induced seizures, we usually try to target GABA, using things like benzodiazepines or, in refractory cases, barbiturates. There has been some exploration of using something called intralipid, where we infuse fat into your blood. The benzonitate is very lipid-soluble, so if you put some extra fat in the blood, it might sequester into the fat as opposed to interacting with your tissues. But, like all cases where intralipid has been used, the evidence is generally limited to case reports, and we can't prove that it really works. In the review I talked about earlier of severe benzonotate exposures reported to U.S. poison centers, six patients got intralipid, and only one of them lived. So, we just have to hope we get to you fast enough that we can actually manage your course and reverse the toxicities that have
2: occurred.
1: Wow, Ryan. So, we don't know if this drug even works for the reason it is prescribed, but we do know it can rapidly lead to seizures and cardiac arrest even with accidental ingestion in children. And children are actually more attracted to this drug than other drugs because it looks like candy. Wow, I really hope it's not widely available.
0: Well... Then I have some bad news for you.
1: Really? How is it so accessible?
0: Unfortunately, it's from our friendly neighborhood healthcare providers who are prescribing benzonatate for cough. Prescriptions for benzonatate have increased in recent years and so have exposures for benzonatate reported to U.S. poison centers. I completely get it. You have a patient who has a lot of pain from coughing or their cough is waking them up at night and you want to help them with that. Most of the available prescription cough medicines have opioids in them. And opioids obviously can cause a lot of problems when they're misused. So providers have been trying to reduce the availability of opioids, leading some to seek out a non-opioid cough medication, of which you pretty much only have benzonitate. Now, of course, I'm looking at this through the tox lens, focusing on the risk side of the risk-benefit ratio. And the purpose of this episode is not to advocate for everyone to stop prescribing benzonitate. I simply want to highlight that benzonitate does have a risk side of the risk benefit ratio and can cause some devastating outcomes in accidental pediatric ingestion and in intentional self harm ingestions. So, for providers prescribing benzonitate, it's a good idea to assess the home circumstances. Are there little kiddos at the home that could potentially get into this medicine? If not, does the patient have a history of self-harm and is there any risk that this could be taken in a self-harm attempt? And if anything else, I hope this reinforces that nobody should be getting 90 or 100 count bottles of benzonotate if they don't need it ensure that only the amount that is actually needed is prescribed for the patient. In the case from this episode, the patient reportedly took 36 benzonitate capsules. That's about a six-day supply if they're 100 milligram capsules. So even a low day of supply is enough to cause toxicity. Speaking of the case, let's get back to that. We have a 21-year-old male who takes a handful of medicines in a self-harm attempt. Well, anyone has access to benzonitate if they've ever been to the doctor for a cough. This patient had had it prescribed for them for a previous cold. The patient experienced a rapid decline in mental status. Well, this is where the case gets tricky. I had to change the case just a little bit so people couldn't Google the details and find the actual case. In the real case report, the patient did have a seizure before arriving to the emergency department unresponsive and apneic. And neurotoxicity from sodium channel blockers does usually present with some initial tremor or seizure prior to the declining mental status, but not always. In fact, we did a review of severe benzonitate exposures reported to a single poison center, and two of the patients actually had declining mental status that required intubation without a seizure, although the majority of patients did have a seizure. <laughs> and in the review I mentioned earlier in the episode of all the bad benzonotate exposures that had ever been reported to a poison center, Only two-thirds, or 66% of the patients, had a seizure reported. So, okay, okay, I understand that might have changed your differential a little bit. So, if you missed the guess this time, you can go ahead and put an asterisk next to it. But the real clue here was the speed at which symptoms developed. This patient became unresponsive on his way to the emergency department very quickly after ingestion. Whether that was from the drug or an unwitnessed seizure or an arrhythmia causing malperfusion, who knows? But it was quick. And that makes sense because liquid benzonitate is rapidly absorbed after the capsule opens. And it's consistent with the literature reporting serious effects occurring in as little as 5 to 15 minutes. The actual rhythm that they found in the emergency department was a wide QRS complex tachycardia, potentially from benzonitate induced sodium channel blockade, or from the patient being apneic, developing an acidosis and irritating the heart, causing it to go into VTAC. Fortunately, it responded immediately to defibrillation, which cardioverted the patient. But in the setting of a wide complex tachycardia, it absolutely would have been reasonable to also administer a hypertonic sodium, like sodium bicarbonate. After cardioversion, the patient was monitored and put on oxygen. They were unresponsive, but they were maintaining their own airway per report. A nasogastric tube was placed, and they actually performed lavage on this patient, which is where we go in and try to remove whatever toxin is in the stomach. This usually doesn't work well for capsules or pills, but for benzonitate, which might be liquid, perhaps you could get something out. They also gave the patient activated charcoal through the NG tube. Their initial arterial blood gas demonstrated a pH of 6.97, so they were severely acidemic. Other labs were not significantly remarkable. He was admitted to the ICU for further monitoring, and his mental status continued to improve. He was actually discharged the next day with no clear neurologic sequelae from his cardiac arrest with psychiatric outpatient follow-up. It's fascinating that this drug has such a rapid onset of toxicity, but also appears to have a rapid offset of toxicity, where if you survive the initial insult, the effects might rapidly dissipate. With a half-life of less than an hour, assuming normal kinetics, an entire benzonate load could be cleared in about five hours. The patient was managed completely with supportive cares for airway, breathing, and circulation in standard ACLS, which is the backbone of most toxic exposures. But as we mentioned before, other therapies that might have been used would be use of hypertonic sodium if there's signs of sodium channel blockade on the EKG, and potentially intralipid if the patient doesn't seem to be responding to therapies or is circling the drain. But that's a little bit more contested. If you want to read more about the case, go to the show notes. I put a link there for the published case report so you can read it yourself. All right. This was a great case, and an episode I wanted to do, because when I get consulted on a Benzonotate ingestion, I get nervous, because they have such a propensity for rapid neurologic and cardiovascular decline. Yet, despite how devastating they can be, many healthcare workers are not aware of the risk of this drug, because it's inappropriately perceived as benign, due to the fact that it's not very effective for the reason we prescribe it. So I hope after this episode, people are more aware of the potential dangers of benzonotate for little hands in the home or people with a propensity for self-harm. Okay, let's do a rapid-fire review of everything we learned. Tessalon pearls, or benzonitate were FDA-approved in 1958 before it was required to show effectiveness for drugs. In theory, they work for cough. We don't have much evidence for that, but we do have evidence that this capsule, which contains a rapidly absorbed liquid sodium channel blocker, can cause neurologically devastating effects as well as arrhythmia in under 30 minutes, and as fast as less than 5 minutes. Treatment is primarily supportive care, with maintenance of airway breathing and circulation. Use of hypertonic sodium, if there's evidence of sodium channel blockade on EKG, and use of benzodiazepines or other GABAergic agents for seizures that might be precipitated by the drug. Providers prescribing benzonotate should be aware of its potential lethality and assess whether there are kids in the home that could get into it or if the patient has a history of self-harm. Limit the prescription to the minimum amount that would be needed in order to appropriately treat the patient's cough.
1: Wow, Ryan, I can't believe I never knew this about this drug.
0: Well, now we're all better prepared to manage the next benzonitate overdose Toxo, That'll do it for today. If you enjoyed what you heard or maybe you learned something new, give us a review. This just helps us reach other people who are interested in learning about toxicology, and it will take you under five seconds. You're on your phone right now. You probably don't even have to take it out of your pocket. If you want to keep track of the show, follow us on social media, on Twitter at Lab Poison, myself at D. We have an Instagram, Talks underscore Talk, and a Facebook page, The Poison Lab. Of course, you can always go to thepoisonlab.com for all the free games, medical resources, and podcasts about emergency medicine and toxicology topics. And of course, keep your ears peeled. We'll be sending out teasers for our next episodes. If you think you know what caused the poisoning or you just have some ideas you want to send out send your guests in to Talkstalk1, that's T-O-X-T-A-L-K-1, at gmail.com. So you can take part in the next episode. Your differentials help us teach other people, and it's a wonderful way to take part in the community. So thanks for writing in and keep doing it. That'll wrap it up. Thanks for listening today. I hope you can join us next time. Hey, Toxo, can you play us out? And maybe not the Doja Cat this
1: time. The information on this show is for educational purposes only and should not be interpreted as medical advice or treatment recommendations. Contact your doctor for health questions or call your local poison center at 1-800-222-1222. The opinions expressed on this show do not represent those of our employees. This show is fully written and shoddily produced by Ryan Feldman. Don't forget to give it a share with your nerdy friends. See you next time. Ta for now.